right, good morning. My name is Sandy Asker. I am the other half of Brian Asker. And I am excited to talk to you today about Dolly Parton. Some of us grew up with Dolly Parton before she seemed to thwart the aging process and before she gave away free books. We remember when Dolly Parton in 1980 was part of a really monumental film called Nine to Five. It exhibited and portrayed the in inequality of women's pay. And she and Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, all names for those of us that maybe have hair like mine can remember. And she did not only sing, but she wrote a song called Nine to Five. I didn't know she wrote it too. The lyrics are actually pretty sad. And if you want to put them next to the book of Ecclesiastes, you might see some similarities. Uh, it's sort of a sad portrait of what many people think of as their job. For instance, what a way to make a living, barely getting by. It's all taken and no given, working nine to five. Well, Dolly Parton, bless her heart, it is an earworm of a song. Ever since I've gotten this uh, assignment today, the song, sometimes I wake up with it in my head. Uh, but as I think about the lyrics, I think, man, wouldn't it be nice if there were a better way to think of whatever it is that we do nine to five? At Crossfree, we want to connect you to Jesus so that you can connect Jesus to your world. And for most of us, our work or whatever we do from nine to five is a significant part of our time. We spend between 30 and 40% of our waking hours at work. This means over a lifetime we will spend 90,000 hours working. So during this series, we're going to look at how to connect our work and Jesus through five missional practices, hoping perhaps to reframe our perspective of work and thinking about how do we follow Jesus all of the time, not just on a Sunday morning or during your small group. The five missional practices are prayer, presence, practice, practicing the sacred table, washing feet, and sharing hope. So perhaps we can have a more positive mindset than sweet Dolly Parton did in 1980. Did you know that work was established as part of God's plan before sin entered the picture? When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, God gave them work. They were to care for the garden. Also, God creates for six days and then creates this rhythm that there would be rest on the seventh. Again, this is before sin entered the picture. This weekly rhythm and Jewish diet is what set them apart from other non-believing people, even though they were in the minority. Now, working the land and toiling, including childbirth, is part of the fall, unfortunately, but that was only brought into it as the brokenness of Adam and Eve not only affected their relationship with God, but also with each other and with creation. So in Genesis 2.5, it says the work God gave Adam was gardening or earth care, Little reminder for us to take care of the planet as all of the trash sometimes comes here and there this time of the year. It says in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. In the early church, work was a virtue. Paul to the Thessalonians says in 2 Thessalonians 3, for even when we are with you, Paul's talking about his time with them, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idols, Idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now, not just work, but whatever it is. For some of us, we might say, I don't have a nine to five job right now, Sandy. 
Well, really, Colossians 3 tells us, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for people, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord God. That word work in Genesis can also be the word serve. There's not necessarily uh, a disconnect there. So again, some of you might say, I don't have a nine to five job, I don't work, I'm a student. Ha ha, well, where are you from nine to five? Are you at school? Likely you are, or if you're a college student, that's your normal job. Maybe you take care of babies from nine to five because you've chosen to stay at home. Or perhaps you're retired and you're helping take care of your parents or a parent. Or you're just a good neighbor, you're a volunteer, or frankly, you're just a human being who doesn't just sit at home and watch Netflix. We're going to be in a letter today that the great church planter Paul wrote to his right-hand man, Timothy. The context is that Paul planted this church in Ephesus. We see this in the book of Acts, and there's a whole letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. Now, Timothy has been left there after Paul had been there for about two years. Timothy went to lead that church, and he was there for two years. Paul is warning Tim, 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 we could call him Tim, why not? That's funny. I'm on a first name basis with him, actually. Paul is warning Timothy to stand strong in the faith and not to waver because there are some who have done that recently. And he urges Timothy to pray. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may leave live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So it's interesting. Brian actually used this word during the announcements. I urge you, if you are a member, to come on Wednesday night. This word urge means literally to beg or to beseech. So Paul is saying, I really, really, really want you to listen to me when I ask you to pray. It's the root word in it means to call out in a loud voice. Paul is saying something that he wants Timothy to take seriously. There's this word then, and I don't know how many of you know this, but I am an English major, and the word then stands out to me. Because when you hear someone say, I urge then, first of all, what, what is he referencing? Well, again, right before this section, Paul is talking about two individuals who have, in a sense, fallen away from the faith. They are not just falling away from the faith, but they are considering themselves to be teachers and teaching people the right thing, but actually, they're teaching false doctrine. They're teaching things that are not right. Paul says, I want you to pray. These words, petitions, prayers, intersection, these basically make, mean the same thing. I was hoping the Greek would make something like really fascinating and interesting. It didn't, okay? So you can save your time. The last word, thanksgiving, is a little bit different. When you say thank you, that's different than praying or asking the Lord for something or having a conversation with God. Who are we to pray for? Paul says, everybody. Pray for everyone. That we would pray and be thankful for everyone. Then he specifically calls out kings. Now, I just read a story last night. It's fiction, but it's based on uh, the truth of history about Hitler and women in England that were getting interested in what Hitler was doing and thinking he was the right. And the way that they talked about Hitler as their leader was like being king. 
those with authority, those with power. And Paul particularly calls Timothy and the church to pray for those. And not just the good ones. If you were in Ephesus at this time or anywhere, anywhere around, there were some bad leaders. There were some corrupt leaders. There were leaders that definitely did not try to follow Jesus and instead oppressed. Paul also in this section seems eager to influence the mindset that grace extends to all people. That God's compassion is offered to everyone. There is a reason to pray. Now, it isn't mentioned here that we're hoping to change the leaders. That we want them to know Jesus. That we want them to have policies and procedures that we agree with. What did the passage say? So that we might live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness. We are praying for them so that something happens to us. This one kind of cooks my noodle, as I like to say. Christians would be called then to be different. Now, peaceful and quiet lives, kind of sounds interesting, like are we just supposed to be, you know, we're doing our gardening and doing our work and we're not causing ruckus and we're timid. That doesn't really fit my personality, so it rubs me up the wrong way a little bit. In culture, regardless of what God you served, being quiet and being peaceable, they were virtues. It didn't matter if you were a pagan or a Christian. Everyone could agree, not causing a ruckus or a riot. Being somewhat quiet in the sense that you're not creating chaos, everybody could agree that that was a lifestyle choice that made you a good neighbor. Verse 3, back to 1 Timothy, says, This is good and pleases God our Savior. God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, Paul is being very clear that God wants all people to understand who God is. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Do you hear this? All people. This is for everyone, including those kings, including the timid, quiet person who maybe loves to garden. This has been witnessed, too, at the proper time. Paul wants to make sure that the Jewish believers and those who are not Jewish understand that God wants them to be one with this one mediator. There are many people out there, but there's only one mediator. There's a clear contrast here. Now, I don't know why my brain went, to, went here, but as I was thinking about this, and I'm in Ephesus, let's say, and I'm a Christian, and I've grown up Jewish, and I've lived in Ephesus, and I'm keeping the Sabbath, and I'm keeping my rules, and now I'm trying to figure out what does it look like to be in Jesus. And then there are these other people who have no idea what Judaism is, but I'm hearing this good news that Jesus loves me, and God wants to be in a relationship with me. There, I sometimes think we think these are two subsets of culture. That if there's like Vikings fans and Packer fans, and basically you're one or the other. Do you know what I mean? Like we kind of think... Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like equal parties. This is not true, okay? So Jews today, I got geeked out on this, okay? Jews currently make up about 16 million of our world's population right now. 16 million Jews on the planet right now. Do you know how much percentage that is of the world's population? Point two. okay? 
Now, I'm not good at numbers, and I probably should have put this on the slide to make sure I do this right, but I think, I think that there are 8 billion people on the planet right now. Does that sound right? Anybody? Okay, so that leaves non-Jews being 7,984,000,000, whatever it is. There's a lot of people who are not Jewish. So there's this little tiny population of people who are like, oh yeah, I know who God is, and then Jesus was a Jew and he fulfilled. And then there's everyone else. This is what Paul is saying is the good news. No longer is it just this kind of quiet and timid subpopulation who live maybe on, in a certain part of town. It's everybody else on the planet. This is a big deal. And we pray because that is a big deal. Paul then says in verse 7, and for this purpose, the fact that the good news is for everyone else, for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and apostle. Now I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. I, can you hear Paul, like a person actually saying this? I am a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Why does he say that? Why does he need to establish himself? He was in Ephesus for two years. They know him. Well, it's a contrast with those people who have fallen away. Paul is making sure that Timothy is saying, no, you listen to me. It might seem crazy that the good news is for everyone, and it might be easier to say, if you come to Christ, you know what you have to do? Circumcision. You know what you have to do if you want to come to know Jesus. Ten things, and then we'll talk about it. No. Paul is saying, through Christ, there's one mediator. It's just Christ. It's not Christ and. It is just Jesus. And Paul is saying, listen to me, not everyone else who's trying to add to the gospel. Also, Paul is not expecting Christians to just be quiet and guard in their corner and hope somebody, by some miracle, comes to know Jesus. Paul is saying, I am a herald. I am teaching. I am proclaiming all verbal words. So sometimes we can see a passage like this and think, I'm just going to live a good Christian life, and God is going to bring people to Jesus. That might be true. But we also see again and again in Scripture that it is about our conversations, our words, what we talk about, how we treat people what we can talk about in terms of how God is at work in our lives. So what does this look like for 9 to 5? First, do you maybe need to go back to the beginning of what I said and do some work with the Lord about your attitude about what you're doing 9 to 5? Now, I have three children in my house that are really counting down the days till summer, and I think that this is going to be interesting talking about 9 to 5 with students because what you're doing now and what you're going to be doing June 10th is very different. So let's talk about what you're doing now until June whatever it is, 8th. If you are a student and you struggle being in school or a teacher, I see you back there, how can God remind you that God has sent you to that place. Maybe God needs to reframe your perspective Monday morning when you go to the office or whatever it is that you do. Secondly, what would it look like in your context to leave, I keep saying leave, why is that? Live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. What does that look like? Not just nine to five but your whole life. There were many uprisings in the time of the early church. 
even after they had like the Jesus thing, they're trying to work it out. I mean, there were zealots and there were people trying to figure out, was Jesus really human? Was Jesus God? What's happening? Should we really live like this and like separate from everyone? I mean, it's not like they had it all figured out, okay? Paul is asking believers to pray and to live, live, I said it right, peaceful and quiet lives. That means we don't try to take over the government with violence and bloodshed, like some were wont to do. It doesn't mean that we force our way physically into spaces or whatever that looks like. Y'all could figure, like, fill in the blanks somewhere here, right, in terms of church history, but recent history. Jesus rebuked Peter in the garden. Peter was like, woo, I'm going to slash off an ear. And Jesus is like, nope, that's not what we're doing here. An example for a peaceful life is how Christians, some Christians found compromise in Rome. I didn't know this until I studied this. Romans permitted people to worship their own gods, but they had to show some respect and loyalty to Rome. Otherwise, Rome allowed Jews to pray and sacrifice for the emperor's health, but not pray and sacrifice to the emperor. So in some synagogues, compromises were made where prayers could be offered and they would show loyalty to Rome to kind of keep the peace, but they didn't have to pray to the emperor. Does that make sense? I'm fascinated by that. I'm sure it could go too far one way or the other, but we see in the scriptures we are to pray for our leaders. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying. I don't know about praying for the emperor's health. Let's have the Lord figure that out. But in terms of praying for leaders, we can see in this, in this time, as crazy it was in Rome, they figured out some compromises. What does it look like to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness? And lastly... Prayer. I would love to have an interactive time where you could turn to a neighbor and say, what does it look like when you pray? Many, many people pray. I hear it all the time, you know. People sort of saying, I was driving down the road and I pray. Or I was hunting and I pray. Or I pray a bedtime prayer before I go to sleep. I think in general, regardless of where you come from, there is some type of prayer life that you have. What would it look like to work at your prayer life at work? My prayer sometimes looks like this, Lord have mercy. Y'all hear me say it sometimes, especially if I'm dealing with that coat rack out there or my children or something's not going right, I just start saying it, right? Or I'm oftentimes, I'll say mercy. That is a prayer. Sometimes it can be in our heads where something's happening and you're like trying to be calm, be a non-anxious presence, and you're praying in your mind, help me, Lord. Uh, sometimes we at our house, the boys still do this. We have kind of a routine. What are you grateful for? What's something you need to be forgiven for? Uh, what did you do well today? And then who could you pray for? We have like a routine. My grandparents used to before bed, and if they could reach each other, because sometimes they, you know, they went to the single bed thing. But I think that they would hold hands, and before they went to sleep, they would say the Lord's Prayer. There are all sorts of different ways to pray. What about thinking of our prayers and expecting them to actually come to pass? And then asking yourself, would the world really be different are we praying big enough 
Are we praying for our coworkers, for your teachers, for that student that really drives you crazy in class next to you? Alex Rahill, who's the church planter leader in our denominations, he asks that question. If our prayers were answered, would the world change? So when I think about how to pray, I have a prayer list. My alarm goes off at 2.22. I have two people that I'm praying for right now that I have a sense that they could know Jesus more. Let's say it like that. They're people I already have relationships with. When you think about people around you, who's around you? Who are in your classes? Who eats lunch at the same time? Who do you see on your walking or your running route? Who's on your team, your swim team, your golf team? Who do you already seem to have rapport for and praying for them? That's easy. Put that on your alarm or whatever you do, okay? Put it on like a note on your mirror. And then who don't you like? I just got a book at the library by someone I don't like who's a leader, and I am determined to read it so I can understand what's happening there a little bit better. One of my favorite stories about prayer is my friend Aaron. Aaron and I went to college together. I went to Hamlin yay many years ago, and Aaron's dad was a biology professor, and he was a hardcore atheist. Aaron and I became like brother and sister kind of our freshman year, and we did all four years of college together, which felt like a lifetime. We had a lot of conversations about Jesus. I would bring him home. My parents would talk to him. This other friend of mine, Dave, was also a hardcore atheist. I remember skiing one night and lying back in the snow, cross-country skiing, lying back in the snow, watching the moonlight, and talking about creation and God. And man, they were both just seemingly so far from the Lord. Prayed for them, prayed for them. Years after we graduated, I heard Aaron got married to a youth pastor. And I thought, what the heck? So I heard the story of how he had gone out to Washington, followed a girlfriend, they broke up, he was trying to figure out what to do, moved to Oregon, and then met his wife. Went to church, came to faith, and was just loving following Jesus, and I was floored. Well, we decided to take a trip out west a few years ago, and we went to visit Aaron and his wife, and his two little boys named Andrew and Peter, and we were having lunch together, and he was praying for our meal ahead of time. And I just was, like, crying. As the kids are wondering, like, why is she so emotional? It's because Aaron was now praying for the meal that we are about to take. The even crazier part of the story is that when Brian and I decided to become church planters, I reached out to Aaron because they had recently moved to start working on a church plant themselves. And as I wrote to Aaron, he wrote me back and said, oh, it's so funny, I was just praying through the book of Matthew where God tells us to pray for more laborers and you're an answer to my prayer. We just never know what God's going to do, how God's going to use relationships, breakups, all sorts of things to help people know him and be part of this huge good news that God offers the world. And how we as we live quiet and peaceful lives, praying for all people, including those who are in charge, the kings and those in authority. And I hope that we pray in such a, world, in such a way that the world is changed. Amen? If you have kids in, in Sunday school, you can grab them and let's pray together as John comes back up. God, you are a big God. You love the world. That's partly why we sing in Spanish, is we want to be mindful 
that uh, frankly, in this room, we were not all born in this country, and therefore, Lord, reflect how you desire for the nations to know you. God, we pray that as we go to work, as we go to school, as we are neighbors, as we do whatever we do from nine to five, God, that you would inspire us to be a blessing. And Lord, as we continue <clears throat> to worship today, God, would you uh, give us a vision of what it looks like for us to be in prayer for those around us, for all people. Amen. <clears throat>